Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 113. Seven big questions for the Premier League season after opening day. Well, the league is back on. It has taken off again. I think we had some really fun results this weekend, some great performances. And there have been questions that we've been sort of wondering over the course of the summer. And as we got to opening day... I started to jot down what I thought were going to be the most compelling storylines of the season because they will develop over time. I don't think these are things that after five or six matches or after, or say, by even November that we'll really, really know how these things are going to pan out. They're a little bit longer term. So there's seven questions. Let's kick it off with number one. Todd Bowley's Chelsea, what will it look like? So, look, the Todd Bowley Chelsea was a landmark event in football because it's the most expensive takeover of any club in history at 2.5 billion pounds. Chelsea, you've been in a state of flux and you'd probably say probably since before Roman Abramovich took over, if you spoke to Chelsea fans, I mean, the Ken Bates era, he had the club doing really well. They had all these foreign players coming in. Glenn Hoddle started a revolution of these players coming in like Ruud Hullet and it just expanded. It was great for a long time. Then, the club was in real trouble, had heavy debt, and Roman Abramovich came in, bought the club, and turned everything upside down in English football, basically. The thing is that there was the investment that he brought, it papered over a lot of the cracks of the way the club was run in the sense that he didn't care if he had to spend a little extra money uh, to replace a player that was an utter failure, even though they were pretty much a rec- club record signing. They were. It was a very interesting thing. You also had the revolving door of players, managers. It was just there was never really a state, uh, a season where you would go through and everything would just feel like it was normal. Every summer there was a saga. Every couple of years there was a manager being sacked, and then there were different things that came along. Uh, players that were bought or acquired in by you know sort of illegal means, which then resulted in transfer bans. All of this. So. Vladimir Putin invades Russia or invades Ukraine and the MPs in the British Parliament, they start demanding that all these Russian oligarchs assets be frozen and Chelsea basically go into winter, essentially, not able to do anything completely in the cold. Abramovich sells the club. Finally, the bully deal ends up taking place. But the thing is that this has also derailed a lot of last season. Antonio Rudiger, for instance, look, he... He no longer is at the club, joined Real Madrid because he was waiting for an offer, waiting for an offer. They didn't make a good one. Then they didn't make another one. And then the sanctions came down, and he knew it's time for me to go ahead and look for something else. Add the Lukaku situation to all of that. There's a big rebuild that needs to happen. And Thomas Tuchel, I mean, by the season's end, he looked really frustrated. He witnessed the unraveling of the league form. Probably the most embarrassing was the... Uh, 4-1 home defeat to Brentford and also the way they were, were so pitiful in their first ra- uh, first leg of the Champions League against Real Madrid which doomed them essentially for the second leg even though they came very close to coming back. So Tuchel also keep in mind last season he was dealing with a difficult divorce. I mean there was so much going on at the club, right? I remember at one point he was even you could sense the tension where he was asked by a journalist uh, about the war and how he felt. And he basically had to just implore the guy, you have to stop. Now have a listen to this. How much do you hope that 
No, listen, 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 you have to stop. I'm not a politician. You have to stop, honestly. I can only repeat it. And I even feel bad to repeat it because I never experienced war. So even to talk about it, I feel bad because I'm very privileged. I sit here in peace and I do my, the best I can, but you have to stop asking me these questions. I have no answers for you. So once the club was put up for sale, it took about four months, it was a long process. The Bowley Consortium comes in and they finally get everything done in terms of betting in. But at this point, there were already players who had decided to leave, Andreas Christensen also being one of them. And there was a sense that this exodus from Chelsea was going to be one that was too big to try and fix, really, over the course of just one summer with brand new owners. Not to mention Marina Granovsky leaves, Bruce Buck leaves, Petr Cech leaves. Things were, yeah, they were really starting to go into a difficult position. Also, then Romelu Lukaku gets loaned back to Inter. The, the question now became, well, how are we going to bring ones in? Because Todd Bowley is in charge, but who's actually running the transfers? Is it really this guy who's never been a part of the European football landscape who is going to come in and actually do this business? Like, is he going to be able to do it? Well, I have to admit, so far, it hasn't been too bad. Raheem Sterling was the first to sign, and I think to a great fanfare because, and surprise to some people. I think a lot of people were shocked that Man City just kind of let him go at 27. If he spends the next five, six years at Chelsea, that could be the best years of his career. It could be an outstanding signing. Khalidou Koulibaly, come on. This guy, it, it, about four years ago, I thought maybe he'd be coming to Chelsea. Every summer, there seemed to be this link to him, to one of the big clubs. And for some reason, he just always stayed at Napoli, whether that was because De Laurentiis doesn't want to ever sell or because Koulibaly was happy in Naples. I don't know. But that's a great signing. Carney Chukwameka. Very, very talented player. I watched him when, uh, for the England when they won the under-18s uh, Euros this summer. And he was very, very good. He was probably player of the tournament. So he's an exciting prospect. But that's one with Chelsea fans go, okay, you just signed a really talented 18-year-old. We've seen this before. He's probably going to go out on loan two or three times and then be sold for you know, 30, 40 million after one good loan spell. Yeah. The question is, is the Bowley era actually going to work out this way? They've also signed Mark Kukurea, who, after watching his debut, you have to say that was a very impressive start, and he looks like he's going to be a great signing. Now, the money they put out is risky. These have to be successes. They cannot just be average players. When you start to pay that kind of money, it, it, gets, it gets big. Wesley Fofana is the current next player that everyone's expecting to see unveiled at Chelsea for somewhere around 70 million euros for... A 19-year-old French player who has already had a severe injury has come back. He shows tons of talent, but you just don't really know. So this is going to be interesting. But I have to say it does seem as if Tom Bowley is putting his money where his mouth is. And he's, he's actually funding the club in, in a way. So for any Chelsea fans who are worried that, that it would be a sort of American ownership style where they tighten the purse strings, they just want everything to be, you know, uh, really conservative – Moneyball tactics of trying to buy low, sell high only. I, I don't think this is what he's going to be doing. And I have to say, I know very, very little about Major League Baseball. And so I don't know exactly how he turned the Dodgers over. But also, what's cool about Bowley is that he is a very, very different presence than Abramovich. And I think Abramovich, what he brought when he, when he was there was important. Uh, I, I think there was something 
interesting in the fact that he never wanted to give interviews. He was just about the club, and he was just pouring money into it because to him, it was fun. He just loved to build the club. Bully, um, you know, rocking up in jeans, a collared shirt, his hair flopping around, Top Gun aviators, you know, took the team to Dodgers Stadium. They went to the batting cages. This is very, very different than the relationship that Roman seemed to have with players. Uh, he's going to be far more accessible to them, staff, media. So that that's going to be very, very interesting. It's going to be a big change in the way the culture is there. But bully means business. You can't say he doesn't. And you have to say, for him to have taken upon the sporting director role by himself, kind of out of nowhere, is ballsy. I mean, it's that that to me is is a very, very strong move. And one that, for some reason, Gary Neville just had to sneer at. Chelsea, I think, are going to have a little bit of a bumpy season with everything that's going on. They're not smooth in the transfer market. They're a little bit more clumsy. I think losing... I, I'm surprised they lost all their football operation yeah. in the first year. It was unbelievable, that. You know, losing everybody that had been sort of, if you like, so good and efficient at building, you know, tra- doing well in the recruitment and on the transfer market. You know, the American guy, Bowley, looks like he wants to play football manager. There's a bit of something that in him... You know, I, I, he is he wandering around a little bit and... They're a bit panicky now. You're wondering, oh, they're coming in for De Jong this morning because he feels like he has to do something. That pressure is on him. He wouldn't have had that pressure if he'd have kept the people that have been there before and just let them operate for a year or two. But it'll be an interesting season for Chelsea. Obviously, they've lost a few defenders as well. They might even lose more to Barcelona. Well, at least Bully's involved, okay? Because the common trope about a lot of the American owners is that they're absent, know nothing about football, hire the wrong people to do the job from other sports, and it all falls apart. Will it work? I think these incoming signings have been very, very positive for the club. Now it's all about which players are offloaded and in which ones they decide to let go and which ones they decide to keep. This is going to be big. And it's also going to be big for fans because there was a, a, a lot of anger when Levi Colwell was about to be sold to Brighton. Instead, it turned out to be a loan deal, which people were very happy about. So the biggest concern for Chelsea fans is that very little changes with regards to the transfer policy surrounding young players. Academy players, they should be given genuine first-team opportunities, like Trevor Chalaba last season. Steps on, scores on his debut, and then has a good season. Had some mistakes that led to goals, but you know, young defenders are going to make mistakes. Defenders get better with age. Selling off talent that the club will regret later on, only the, to bring them back for ludicrous amounts of money, or to watch a rival bring them in. We know this story, Kevin De Bruyne, Mo Salah. This is something that Blues fans have saw, they saw enough of during the Roman Abramovich era. There was, Lampard came in, brought in this youth revolution, and everyone was like, well, yeah, let's do this. So, can they do that with their transfer policy, with the way they want to set in a culture? Can they make it into the top four this season? This is the big question for a lot of people. Okay, moving on to number two. We go from... Uh, Team in blue in London to another team in blue, the Foxes, Leicester. Can they avoid a relegation battle? Now, I say this because it's very simple. At the time of writing this piece, Leicester have yet to make a single signing this summer transfer window. They're the only team in the big five leagues to have still not done anything. So the only notable uh, departure is Kasper Schmeichel. Leaving one year before his contract ends, he was club captain, right? You would assume they'd have got a decent amount of money for him. But no, he went to Nice for £1 million. Um, They don't really need money coming in. 
they just have too many players that they don't really feel are going to be important for the side who are on decent wages, who they pay decent money for. A lot of these signings came in in the last two seasons. The problem is that when you don't really strengthen, when you aren't bringing people in, a staleness can really quickly set into a side. And this tends to be a really bad sign for clubs that are lingering around mid-table because all it takes is a bad run of form, you know, for about two months of the season, you can find yourself between 16th and 20th very quickly. It it happens a lot. Relegation form, it, it doesn't take a long time for it to set in and have a drastic impact. They have a lot of talent on their side. As I mentioned, Fofana is there. He's wanted by Chelsea. Will they let him go? If they let him go, they get a ton of money, but they lose a player that they really, really want to keep. He just recently signed a new deal anyway, so that's why this deal would cost so much money. But if they're able to shift a couple people out and find some players that really, really fit with their system that may be cheap, then I think they'll be fine. But if they do lose Fafana, if somehow they do lose Madison or Harvey Barnes or any of these major important players that they've had over the last few years, I could really see them struggle. Now, I do want to say Brendan Rodgers is a good manager. Okay, he, he seems to do well when he's working with limited resources anyways. It's almost like some managers, the more money you give them, it's almost like they just have too much choice and they start to make mistakes and sort of go away from what they know works to going to unknowns of using players who you're kind of relying more on their talent than their ability to follow instruction and you know be coachable. But his track record is good with smaller sides, with smaller budgets. And, you know, I mean, he did really well in the championship with Swansea, brought them up. And in the early years when he was at Liverpool, he was very good. And I, th- I think that this Leicester job has cemented what Rodgers really can be the players he's brought through, I mean, goodness me, James Justin, Keenan Dewsbury Hall, Harvey Barnes, Yuri Tielemans, Luke Thomas, Fofana, of course, Wilfred and Didi. These are young players brought in who have been significantly improved. Their stock has gone up. But here's the problem. The Premier League is brutally competitive. And like I said, standing still is the equivalent of going backwards. And, and if they don't do anything in this transfer market, I really do feel for Leicester. You know, if you think about it, it's it's almost every team outside of the top six that is in this kind of a position. West Ham right now, right? They're, they're that seventh club, right? They're the one that, that they look like they might break into the top six this season. Leicester were that just a you know, couple seasons ago. When the structure is good, when you have a manager in place that's, you know, driving the players well, that knows how to get certain players out the door that might be a problem and knows which players they need to improve the side, everything can be going well for a while. But these clubs are not so rich that they can buy their way out of trouble. The only teams that can really do that are the big six. Everyone else, you have to understand, if conditions go wrong, they're just one bad season away from being relegated. So Leicester, they played against Brentford, first match of the season at home, and drew 2-2 after having been in the lead 2-0. So... There's positives and there's some negatives there. How will they deal with it this season going forward? Will they be able to bring some someone in, some other people in? Will they let some people go? If that happens, if any of that happens, if Leicester can stay in the stop, top half, I think that'd be great. But you just wonder, are the wheels going to start to fall apart off this bandwagon that we all jumped on six years ago when they won the title? 
Uh, I certainly hope not. That would be sad. All right, let's move on to number three. Is Newcastle's rise going to lead to European football next season? So the question is, are Newcastle ahead of schedule? Uh, they're technically the richest club in the world. At least, you know, that's what the narrative that was given from the very beginning. Uh, they, they do have the fortune of the Saudi ownership behind them, Saudi royal family. There's a lot of money there, obviously. How much they want to give, I'm not sure. It seems as if right now they're focusing a little bit more on the LIV golf tournament. But if that's any metric of how they may be willing to invest to topple things, well, you better be ready. Newcastle at some point, I would imagine, are going to splash some real cash. Most people expected this kind of PSG or Chelsea-style spending spree to have happened, and it really hasn't. They just started with Kieran Trippier. They ended up getting Bruno Guimaraes, Chris Wood. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's kind of interesting. These, these are much more low-key signings, and the idea for them has been we want to try and get into the Champions League places within five years. All right, that's pretty good. I mean, it seems very gradual as a come-up for what they may be capable of, considering if they invest more aggressively, it might happen quicker. But I do think they merit credit for not wanting to turn everything upside down overnight. Like, players are on contracts. Uh, and although most are, like, probably not in the plans when a top four finishes the goal, they will serve the purpose in the meantime to maintain a sustainable and continuous growth for the club in that direction, Right. I said they started with Kieran Trippier. Most people were shocked about that. That was a great signing, though. Guy scores on his debut, makes an immediate impact before he got injured. Chris Wood, very clever signing. I mean, this was in this period of time, Newcastle were down close to the bottom. They signed Chris Wood from Burnley. He, he only scored two goals, but he had an impact, and it did weaken a direct rival. It also allowed other players like San Maximin and Joe Linton to, to have a bigger impact as well. This summer, they've already signed... Another Burnley player they've got, and perhaps the best performer of her recent seasons in Nick Pope, the goalkeeper. They finalized Matt Target from Aston Villa, which is another you know, decent signing. This is, this is instead of going to Europe and spending $30, $40 million on maybe a talented left back from Spain or France or Germany, you go with someone who's been in the Premier League for a few years already and that is solid. And it's this is part of the transfer strategy that I think is good. On top of that, they go and they get Sven Botman. 2021 Ligue 1 champion from Lille. And that is a great signing. For those of you who don't really know much about him, haven't seen him play much, he played for Lille, the team that I support in France, so I saw a lot of him. This is a really good left-sided center back, big guy, can pass the ball, can win headers, can, can get in the box and score goals as well. Yeah, great signing. Absolutely terrific signing. And, yeah, I mean, they could use a little more support for Callum Wilson, and Chris Wood, a little more depth, maybe a little more guile, something different. But you have to say, they are very, very gradually turning this team from a team that looks like a half-championship team uh, and, and having a few average players to something far more rigid that is not going to fall apart anytime soon. Bruno Guimaraes, um, goodness me, his impact has been spectacular since he set foot at St. James Park. And the hope is that each of these signings can really take the club to the next level. This is a question is, will it happen? I mean, their, their form at the back end of the season was better than almost anyone else. They, they would have cracked the top six. So 
if two or three of the more right two or three of the right players come in, surely Newcastle must be able to compete with teams like Wolves, West Ham, Leicester, and Brighton for those satellite European spots if a team like Man United has a horrendous season, for instance. I don't really know, but I, I just feel that Newcastle should be right in and around there, that everything seems to be going well. There's a nice slow build. And, yeah, I mean, my question really is, will they get themselves ahead of schedule and manage to qualify for at least one of the European competitions for next season? Tell you what, the Geordies have long waited for this, so we'll see how patient they can be with it. But it's on its way. All right, number four. Liverpool versus Manchester City, volume five. In my time watching the Premier League, this has to be one of the greatest football rivalries uh, in the league. It's it's possibly in English football history. I don't know. I can't comment on things from the 60s. But w- the reason I say this, it's not because of the blood and thunder when they play. It's not because of the aggression. It's not because the crowds are more crazy. Or, or, or for instance, constant mind games between managers. I think that was another thing that we've, we've seen before. Mourinho was was... King at that, obviously Wenger and Ferguson had had their spats. Uh, Ferguson and um, Rafa Benitez as well. All well known. But these rivalries, they all had some kind of bad blood surrounding them, right? Some kind of, you know, animosity between the clubs or certain personnel. And that is not what this rivalry has been about. This is basically the two best managers on the planet crafting to what in their mind, is the absolute ideal squad and the ideal playing style. And the competition between those two has just been so compelling because what it's yielded is the highest quality football I think the league has ever seen, especially from more than one team. So the question that everyone has, obviously, is who's going to win the league? Looking at the recent years, City have three, Liverpool have won the last four titles. Both brought in young, powerful, exciting forwards, Darwin Nunes and Erling Holland. That is going to be a really, really fascinating storyline to, to, to keep an eye on. Of course, both have let important players leave as well, and Sadio Mane and Raheem Sterling. It seems as if like nothing can point to a clear separation between these two teams almost every season, which is astounding. And that's what it's been, actually. Nothing separates these teams except for about a point, right? Since the 2018-2019 season, which is 144 games that they've played, City have amassed 338 points to Liverpool's 337. Yeah, only one point over the course of four seasons is the difference between them. It's also worth mentioning for some context here on how good they've been. These teams have 338 and 337. Chelsea come in second or coming third in that table, having collected 264 points in that time. It's 70-point difference. It's, it's absolutely huge. It's absolutely huge. So it's clear that these two really are the head and shoulders teams above everybody else. I know that things can go kind of weird and different. We saw Liverpool really struggle when they had a ton of injuries a couple of seasons ago. I don't really see that happening again to either squad. I think they're also deeper than they were then. So... I just don't think Manchester City and Liverpool are going to slide out of the top two. I think most people probably see that as the case. 
course, you never really say never in football, but but they are just so, so good. And look, the others can try to catch up, but the building process that it takes to put such a juggernaut of a team together, it takes time. And if Chelsea, Man United, Arsenal, or Spurs really want to challenge for the, the title, for the crown, any season soon, they're going to have to raise their levels quite dramatically. And I think some of them are starting to do this, maybe not all. It's also not that Liverpool and City are unbeatable uh, to the other top teams, but they're just so ruthlessly efficient at dispatching absolutely anybody else. Because of the way they play, they, they, it doesn't matter what you bring to the table, they can overpower you because they're just a higher quality team. And it's not just a brutish style of play, which is awesome. There's so many ways for them to beat you. And the other key is that consistency is the magic word for these teams. They just they just win, 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 win. They tick over every single match, pretty much. That's why these teams are so interesting. So Man City, they've also signed Juliana Alvarez from River Plate. That's an exciting young Argentine who actually appears to be in Pep's, Pep's plans pretty much from the off. He scored in the Community Shield. It doesn't look like he's going to be sort of kept in the back too much. I, th- I don't know if he'll start much, but I do imagine he'll get off the bench a fair bit and not just be in the shadows and loaned. Calvin Phillips was brought in from Leeds. Looks like a pretty perfect long-term replacement for Fernandinho, so we'll see how long it takes for him to also adjust. They let Alexander Zinchenko uh, and Gabriel Jesus follow Raheem Sterling out the door. And the question was, oh, man, is this team a little bit lightweight? I mean, there's rumors that Barcelona want to somehow bring Bernardo Silva to the Spotify new camp to join uh, the new Levers FC if you will. I'm not sure that City fans would be too happy about that, and I don't really know if that's going to be possible. But, meaning for Barcelona, I think they've got they've got enough things to deal with trying to register nine players. The other thing is that social media's immediacy like creates knee-jerk reactions and narratives that go viral and linger until something drastic changes in the story. So, enter the Darwin Nunes versus Erling Holland thing. I don't know. I don't know. It's a thing for people. Look, Nunez misses a big chance of preseason, spreads like wildfire. Oh, God, he's going to be a failure because Holland scored in his preseason game. He's going to be amazing. Uh, that, what, what Community Shield and um, Nunez scores, earns a penalty, and changes the game for Liverpool while Holland misses three chances and one from five yards. So then, obviously, the narrative flipped. Holland's going to be a failure. Nunez is going to be the star. Well, they both ended up scoring on their Premier League debuts, so that can go out the window. But no, this will persist all season. Look, it's logical to pit these two against each other and and compare them. I I, I do understand the logic behind doing it. But we're also talking about two different profiles of players in terms of where they've come from, what they've already achieved. Darwin Nunes sort of just had a breakthrough season last season. People have known about Erling Haaland for about four years now. Look, will City manage to supply Erling Holland the way they they need to? I, I think that it won't take too long before they figure out just how to slide him through when you have players like Kevin De Bruyne. If the run is on, the pass is on, he's going to score goals. Look, it may not matter uh, where the teams are, really, when we go into the World Cup break. But injuries aside, these two look dead even. And I think it's just going to be another fantastic race for the title between the two can anyone follow them a little closer i'm not so sure the question is can liverpool get one over on city who have been able to just pip them to the title all right number five yeah after the opening day this is uh 
this is a club that is in utter turmoil again. It seemed as if things were going to be going well for Manchester United, but number five is Man United and Eric Ten Hag. Will things finally change? Ugh. Losing 2-1 to Brighton like that at Old Trafford was not good. That was really not good. And look, after Ole Gunnar Solskjaer led United to second in 2021, they had a very, very positive summer of transfers right away. Jaden Sancho came in after that. There was a long transfer saga the year before. They finally get him. Rafael Varane comes in to support Harry Maguire. This is, wow, this is going to be great. And then late in the window... They re-signed Cristiano Ronaldo, who was on the brink of going to City. Many people now feel that they should have just let him sign for City and continue with the plan going into the opening match of the season that they had. Instead, Fergie reportedly got himself involved to convince Ronaldo to go to Old Trafford instead of the Etihad. Now, I don't know. A lot of these stories, they kind of sound like a bunch of different half-truths that get put together into a nice-sounding narrative. But really... Everything started so well for them last season when CR7 scored a double on his debut, and he rescued them multiple times in the Champions League group stage, but things started to really go downhill, and results, performances, everything was just starting to get abysmal. They were blown away by Liverpool. Then they had the shock dismantling at Watford, and it was time for Solskjaer to go. They bring in Ralph Ragnick, And I have to say, I was one of those people, like many others, who were like, oh, look, at least the dude's going to come in. He doesn't really care about hurting people's feelings. He's here to bring a structure, say, this is how we're going to play, and we need to get into the Champions League. That's the goal. So we're going to tighten things up, and we're going to qualify. But the toxicity just continued during his reign, and I have to say, I was heavily disappointed with what he ended up bringing. He Nowhere near enough energy from himself, nowhere near enough intensity from himself to create a pressing, running game. They just didn't do it. Man United were, I mean, they, they were really no better under Rangnick than they were under Solskjaer. So Eric Ten Hag, when he did his job interview, apparently he went into the United board and just roasted them for all the things he saw that were wrong within what the club structure was, the recruitment, and telling them what he felt needed to happen to rebuild the culture. Apparently this was so impressive that it proved his Ajax record was just no fluke and that he would be the man to turn the ship around. I mean, I, th- I think that's incredible. If, that's, if that story's true, it's, it's great. And by all accounts, things look pretty positive uh, from preseason. I mean, things went pretty well, especially at the beginning of free season, beating Liverpool 4-1. That was fun bragging rights for a lot of United fans, although you have to be quick to point out, preseason doesn't really matter. It's just about getting things going. And it's kind of interesting how preseason was going so well. And I'm not someone that likes to really bring Ronaldo into this as a point of blame, but when they were away, he wasn't around, and things seemed settled. As soon as they came back and he shows up to the Rio Vallecano game and leaves at halftime after being subbed and not playing well, once again, everything focuses around Ronaldo. I mean, when they concede a goal, even if he's on the bench, the the cameras pan to his face and then Ten Hogs, right? I mean, Ronaldo is such a distraction right now. It's similar to what Harry Kane's situation at Spurs was last year. You wonder how they're going to deal with this. And 
though things look good in preseason, to lose 2-1 at home to Brighton on the opening day really, really turned everything back into turmoil. Not very many pundits are giving Man United a chance of finishing in the top four. And I think that prior to the opening day, that maybe seemed like a bit harsh. But now, no. And especially the fact that they've been trying to sign Frankie de Jong from Barcelona for about eight weeks now. It's kind of ridiculous because presumably he wants to be a Barcelona player because he wants to play Champions League football and he wants he wants to be at Barca. Like that's He wanted to go there. He wanted to be a part of that project. He doesn't want to leave now that the project is actually turning into something great again. The problem is he's got this contract and Barcelona are doing all kinds of crazy stuff to try and finagle him out. That's a, that's a topic for another day. And I'm sure it's being covered by so many people if you, if you need to look into what Barcelona are doing. but it, And that's all going to sort of come to a head this week, obviously, in some way or another. My point is Man United have been chasing one player who doesn't even want to go play for them for eight weeks. Why? I mean, as as soon as they realized this might be a difficult deal to make happen now, they should have walked away and gone and found maybe one or two other options. And then if they want to come back to Frankie later in the window, if Barcelona are really desperate and just want to basically hand him over for free, well, maybe that would work. But still, the problem is the player doesn't really want to go there, doesn't want to be in a club that's not in the Champions League. And here's the problem for Man United. It's not certain when they'll be back. And it's not certain that for Frankie de Jong, does he say, well, if I go there, I'll be the I'll be the X factor that takes us to the Champions League. He may be paying attention, looking around and going, I don't know what I'd be getting into there. And that's part of the problem for Man United right now. Ten Hag does look to be a proper manager. He'll set high standards and demands, but will it come off in his first season? I don't really know. I mean, one thing's for sure. He needs time to clear out dead wood from this team and build the unit he feels can compete at the highest level. If you trust him as a coach, you got to let him be a coach. And you got to also let him build his team. It's kind of like what Arsenal are doing with Arteta right now, if you think about it. Which leads us to number six. Who will finish third and fourth? So I already established, I think, that Liverpool and Man City are going to take the top two spots. But then, after that, it becomes really difficult. The race for the top four should be the most competitive in years, in my opinion. I mean, providing all the teams in the debate, uh, providing they all have good seasons, right? They don't have mediocre seasons where things collapse. So Spurs, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Man United, they're all expected to really battle out for those two spots. Yes, there is a conversation for West Ham because they've strengthened their team. They've got uh, Jean-Lucas Camaca from Sassuolo, Naïef Aguerre from Rennes, Maxwell Cornet, he comes from Burnley, and Flynn Downs from Swansea. So they, they've added some interesting players, and we'll see how well they, they fit in, right? I don't know if Skamaka's going to really hit the ground running. This is It's a difficult league to land in as a center forward. But it is hard to imagine a team outside of those top, outside of the big six will really make a push. Leicester have not signed anybody. Wolves are in a rebuilding stage. They've just signed Gonzalo Guedes, which is quite impressive, from Valencia. And Bruno Lag, who, it's kind of interesting. He, he's, he's a very understated, underrated coach, it seems. But Wolves were in the top six or around there for a good portion of the season last term. So are they capable of going? And they haven't really lost anybody. The whole thing is if we remove all these possible surprise packages, 
and focus on those big four teams that are in the conversation, it still looks difficult to call. As for the Blues, this is a strong squad that they have. We mentioned it earlier. It's solid. It's diverse in terms of options. Who scores the goals for Chelsea this season? I think that's everyone's question, right? Timo Werner is is gone back to Leipzig, which that $30 million that they bring in, it, it helps to buffer what they've already signed, but it might also instigate them to be like, well, let's see if we can find a forward. Look, Tuchel will need this team to grind out results until they can actually settle and figure things out. Whether they're winning games 1-0 for the next month and a half, just just to continue to get points until they really get into a rhythm, that's going to be desperately necessary. They play Spurs this weekend. That is going to be incredible. Now, Arsenal. Arsenal have impressed this summer, but Arteta is the driving force. On the recruitment side, Edu has done really well. Uh, busy getting players in, but he recently also spoke about how important it was for certain players, he didn't say who, but certain players to be moved out of the club. Mesut Ozil is probably going to be one of your number one thoughts here. But there's also other guys that they just have made sure to let go. The other big one, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And a lot of criticism was handed out towards Arteta for getting rid of his top scoring center forward and not replacing him with anybody. But you see... Everything that Arsenal are doing is methodical at the moment. They're taking their time, right? In my opinion, they're actually two years ahead of Manchester United in the way that their rebuild is working, right? And they're showing how difficult a rebuild can be after, you know, there's been allowed to fester some really bad habits for years on end. After Ferguson left, after Wenger left, there were bad habits that had set in. Arsenal, look, they're exciting to watch now. They have quality players, they have developed a backbone, which was not seen in the final years of Wenger's time and hasn't been until Arteta's taken over, to be honest. The scrutiny he's been, he's handled very well. There's a lot of people who see him as odds-on to be sacked this season. But in my opinion, the progress that they've made is it's abundantly clear. I mean, they, he won an FA Cup. He's He's gotten them closer and closer and closer. And now it looks like they're more and more settled. And and I, I really feel that Arsenal, having brought in the, the players they have, they are showing what Man United needs to do. You have to start letting important players go, players that have been around for a while. You have to get them out the door, bring in young players who are desperate to make an impact, bring up players that came through the academy, get a good mix of that, and bring in some mature faces to help. It'll be very interesting to see how Man United maybe look at Arsenal if Arsenal do have a significantly better season than them. All right, Spurs. They're the final piece of the pie in this top four race, I think, under Antonio Conte, and they look like a proper side. They really do. Uh, they were they look as dangerous to play against as when Pochettino was there and they were in their pump, right? They, they, with Son and Kane... Still around. I mean, this is the best duo in Premier League history in terms of goals and assists to each other. Kulusevski joins the band. In the So he joins last season, does incredibly well, and he's just fully a part of it. Now he's scoring goals along with the others. And then other deals they made in the transfer window have been actually pretty impressive, right? They, they really should push others to the limit. They brought in Ivan Perisic from Inter Milan. That's a coup. For free. I mean, that's awesome. Fraser Forster comes in as backup for goalkeeper, which I think is really important to have a good backup goalkeeper because 
Hugolouris is getting older. They brought in the highly rated Jed Spence. Clément Langlais comes in from Barcelona on a loan. Perfectly good, adequate player to put in a three-back, which Conte will see as absolutely ideal. And they got big money moves, Richarlison and Yves Bissouma. Now, these are two players who will move the needle for Spurs. They will help them stay more solid in games, and they will help them score more goals and win more games. That I, I think there's no denying this. Considering Steven Bergvine is the only like actual major player to have left the squad, this goes to show you they are very well equipped to challenge for trophies, and they have a winning coach as a manager. They have a manager who is a proven winner. I can tell you as a Chelsea fan, when Antonio Conte came into Chelsea and he spent the first four matches trying to sort of appease the board by playing certain players, and then all of a sudden he goes, I'm done. I'm changing to my formation. This is terrible. These guys need to do what I need them to do. And then they went on to win 17 straight games and won the league. So he is the guy. Conte is the guy to have come in fresh, never even been here, and won right away. It's going to be fascinating. I, I, I think at this point, Man United look to be the weakest of these four teams. But if Chelsea get their business done and Arsenal and Spurs have good, consistent seasons, what a race it could be. And finally, number seven, the final question. How will the World Cup affect the league this season? Now, this is the biggest unknown because it's a first-time occurrence. We've never had the World Cup played in November, December before, right in the middle of a league season. It's never happened, at least for Europe, right? So there's some downstream consequences and effects of having this event take place when it will. There have to be. Some are more obvious and some we just won't know until later. But the first thing I wanted to mention was sort of the player welfare, injury risk, uh, as the as the big show approaches, right? Like Paul Pogba, for instance, he decided not to let the Juventus doctors have surgery on him. They recommended surgery on his knee. He decided, no, I want to go with some other treatment. And his whole idea was, well, if I get surgery, I'm not going to be, I, I'm going to miss the World Cup, period. But if I do this other treatment, maybe I can get back in time for the World Cup. Well, Juve, they just want the guarantee that he'll be back for the second half of the season. If Paul Pogba goes to the World Cup, having done his own treatment, plays at the World Cup, re-injures himself, spends the rest of the season out, Juve are going to be quite annoyed. But, look, there's a risk. Uh, for every single player, there is a risk about what you decide to do for your own player sa- for your own safety and for your own health to fitness to be able to go to the World Cup. And not, right? And, and this Paul Pugba thing is just one case, but there's such a wide variety of situations, especially that may start to happen come October. So the fitness issue is also interesting because there's also the recovery after the World Cup for players involved, right? The eventual winners and semifinalists and finalists. I mean, there's going to be a lot to process. So for them to go straight back into football afterwards, it might be really interesting. I mean, we saw Mo Salah seem to have a pretty big dip in form after the African Cup of Nations. Uh, and Sadio Mane seemed to almost thrive. And I, I'm not saying that that was because Mane got one over Salah, but it was because Mane was going to the World Cup. Salah had to deal with the disappointment 
that he lost it. And and the African Nations Cup had happened as well. So you had these two situations that seemed to kind of just dent Salah's confidence a little bit, maybe his energy, right? So how many players come back to the Premier League exhausted? The break will also give teams who are struggling the opportunity to sort out some problems, uh, and especially teams that if they don't really have many players in their squad in Qatar, it almost gives them a second preseason to iron out anything important they need to deal with. I think that's fascinating. So I look back at a situation similar to this. Aston Villa, they're a great example of this because having struggled to avoid the drop, um, basically what they, they they were struggling to avoid the drop in the 2019-2020 season. And it, it looked like they were odds-on favorites to go down with a few others. But then the lockdown happens. COVID hits, lockdown goes through, everyone has to go on break. Dean Smith gets his staff together, and they decide, like, what can we do to stay in the league? And they decide to make a very clear set of plans for how they're going to shore up the defense and save themselves. And they did. There was a huge difference in the way that they defended post-lockdown. And they were in great form, and they got out of trouble. So let's say Nottingham Forest or Brentford, for example, they're in the bottom three in November, and they barely have any players going off to Qatar. They'll have plenty of time to improve on what they need to do to stay in the league. And then in hopes that all the other teams, uh, that the teams who have players who come back are going to be so exhausted and sort of all over the place that they're going to struggle. Who knows? Maybe it'll go that way. Another interesting difference might be seen in the January transfer window, right? There's many transfers that have kind of happened or not based on the World Cup. In this case, some players might otherwise have moved to a bigger club in the summer and, and, and a step up, but they opted to stay where they were because they could get guaranteed playing time. Week in, week out, Christopher Nkunku from Leipzig is uh, sort of an example of this possibly. May have wanted to stay in Leipzig, but there was talk of Real Madrid, Barcelona, City, United, Chelsea. All, all of them were after him, apparently. He decided to sign a new contract with the Red Bull Club, and he's going to start every game. If he continues to score goals, there's a really good chance Didier Deschamps selects him. So... Then January rolls around. Imagine there will be a lot of departures and arrivals over Europe in in that period of time in January when that transfer window opens. The World Cup is always a major showcase for, for the football marketplace. So stars are made. And when do they get sold? Well, normally in the summer, right when the World Cup is over. Well, here it's going to be about a week after Christmas, about a week after the World Cup is over. Bang, the transfer window opens. And I imagine there will be a lot of sales. Players who, for instance, stayed at their clubs uh, just just because they were afraid that they might not get playing time elsewhere. Or players who stayed at their clubs just so they could really manage their minutes. There's all kinds of things like that. Once the World Cup is over, those questions, they kind of go out the window. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, The big teams who will see most of their squad travel to the Middle East, oh my goodness. It's going to be fascinating to see how they deal with it. And then you think about the players that aren't going. Mo Salah won't be there. So he's going to have a second preseason, middle of the season to get fresh. Same with Erling Holland. Yikes. Be afraid. Be very afraid. So, look, this is those are the seven big questions, right? Todd Bowley and Chelsea, what will it look like? How will it go? Can Leicester avoid a relegation battle? Is Newcastle's rise going to lead to European football as early as next season? Liverpool Man City Volume 5, who's going to take this one? 
Man United and under Eric Ten Hag, will things actually change at United? Who will finish in third and fourth? And how will the World Cup effectively? Seven lovely questions. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. This was a fun one. Take it easy. 